Thanks for joining us for First College Ministries College Worship Gathering. We hope that what you hear will encourage you and challenge you to be more like Jesus in your everyday lives. If you're a college student in the Tuscaloosa area, please join us Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. for college worship. You can learn more about First College Ministry at firstcollegeministry.org. gentlemen, welcome to College Worship. I'm really glad you're here. Without further ado, Brother Gil McKee, everybody. All right, so every year, I guess for the last four years probably, you've given us an opportunity to harass you once a semester in the spring. Um, And so we're just grateful that you're here again this evening. And so we have, um, as always, collected your questions, and we've done our best to compile them, and he's received every question, but we've also gone through them and tried to see what kind of fit thematically for the evening, because you know we're not going to be able to answer every question that you submit. We had, I think, nearly 40 questions submitted, um, and there's no way that we're going to answer 40 questions in roughly 40 minutes. So um, we have a plethora here, though, and I know that you've seen these as well, so I think we just jump in. Let's go for it. All right, I'm going to open us in prayer, and then we'll just start shooting our bullets, all right? Father, you're good. We thank you so much for this opportunity. Lord, I thank you for a pastor who's willing to give us of his time, and ask God that you would just be with him as he shares with us this evening, that you would speak through him, that you would allow his answers to be uh, just more revealing of his character personally, but also his passion for you and his passion for ministry here. And God, we thank you that we have this opportunity to spend some time with him and to learn more about him personally, but also him pastorally. And so we ask God that you would just be pleased with this, that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth through these things and through these questions. And God, we ask that you would give him discernment in the way that he responds and how he seeks to encourage each of us here this evening. So God, again, in all of these things, we ask that you would take it, that you would multiply it for your purposes. And of course, Lord, that you would receive the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, so in a true interview fashion, who is Gil McKee? Great question. Well, um, (laughs) I'm just a guy. I'm a native of Houston, Texas. Uh, Yeah, and uh, (laughs) lived there for uh, three years and then moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Was there for 12 years and then moved back to Houston to Pearland. Uh, when I was 15, and uh, so that's where I went to high school and so forth. But um, yeah, so graduated from high school, started college, um, and it was uh, really during my freshman year of college that I sensed uh, God's call into ministry. And uh, RJ will agree with this, but I'll just go ahead and say it. It, it was uh, my, my initial call, it, it was to music, believe it or not. And um, Finally figured out I couldn't sing very well, and so God did something else with me. But, uh, but anyway, uh, so that's that's who I am. Just uh, you want to know something about my family, or I mean, why not? Anything like you know, that? All, yeah, we want all the juice. You know, yeah, you just yeah. give us all the details. All right. So my wife Sharon and I met during the summer of 1979. Wow. And uh, three years later, in May of uh, 
1982, we married, and so we're coming up on our 40th wedding Just to give you a little bit of context, I was not born yet. Oh, that's not when necessary. When they were married, so. Turn his mic off. Yeah. Cut, yeah, yeah. I mean, you guys make fun of me for how old I am. I'm just, yeah. I need something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, did I mention I'm a grandfather? We have four grandchildren. Uh, we have two children, uh, both of whom met their spouses here um, in Tuscaloosa. We have been here for 22 years. So our kids were still fairly young, and uh, they met their spouses uh, during their time at the university. And they married, and now each of them have two children. And so they're still in town, so we're very blessed. We have our, we have our family here, and so we're, we're really, really glad to, to be here. Um, I'm going to come back to your relationship with sharing because yeah. we had a really good question about that. But okay. we'll jump into a little bit of lighter fare. What's your favorite hobby? Mm, I like to hunt. Yeah? Yeah. used to like to ride Harleys until my wife made me sell mine. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, so. One real, wreck. I mean, one, one wreck. wreck. Yeah, yeah, one wreck. and you Ruins know, so it all. Ruin the whole deal. The first fall retreat that I was a part of here. You know, Tim Simpson, my predecessor here, and I, we overlapped for about two months. And so we were at this fall retreat together, and we invited Pastor Gill and other staff to come down. We didn't know who was coming. But then the second day of the retreat, you just hear, and then he comes up on his Harley trike because, yeah, he deserves an extra wheel. That's how cool he is. Yeah. But um, it was like, okay. <laughs> at least you weren't wearing, you know, biker chaps. That was... Yeah. That could have been a lot more awkward. I don't look good in leather, man. I it just was. Uh, <laughs> what can I say? Man, that answered my next question. So that's good. Uh, <laughs> all right. So returning to your relationship with Sharon, how did you meet, and how did you know that you were going to marry her? Yeah, that, that's oh, sweet, isn't it? <laughs> so watching these guys lead worship tonight, I was I happened to be traveling with a Christian singing group in the summer of 1979 and uh, we just were traveling kind of through the southeast and so during that summer I met Sharon um, at a church where we did a concert in North Louisiana and um, we met after the concert at kind of a fellowship with other students and so forth and um, I guess I could just go ahead and tell them the truth you know I when I got to this house where they were having this fellowship after our concert, I, I had to go to the bathroom. So um, I'm just telling you the Sorry, truth, all right? And so I'm, right I'm standing at the door, you know, and waiting on somebody to open the door. And I, in my mind, I'm going, the first person I see, I'm going to have to ask them where the bathroom is. And walked in the door, and the first person I laid eyes on was Sharon. Walked over there, didn't know her from Adam, didn't know her name. I said, would you mind telling me where the restroom is? And she showed me where the restroom is. <laughs> God can speak anytime, anywhere. And I had this, I just, I just had this uh, sense that, man, I'd, I'd like to meet her, know, who, yeah. you know, know something about her. And, so, and she was like, man, this is a man who knows what he wants. Ah, no, well, <laughs> well, no, because I didn't know what I wanted, really, other than just to get to know her. That is not the moment I knew I would marry her. So yeah. anyway, but we met, and it just kind of struck up a distance relationship. And for the next three years, uh, we corresponded, then I started going back and forth. It was about 460 miles from school to her house. and So about every five or six weeks, I'd go see her for a couple of days and, and come back. And two weeks after I graduated, uh, we got married. 
So that's that's the story. And as far as you know, it was just a it was just a process, really. It wasn't kind of a wake up one day and went, oh yeah, she's the one. It just the relationship went from friendship to you just wore her down, people. right? That's, yeah, yeah, wore yeah. down. That's exactly right. Uh, so, but anyway, yeah. If you've not met Sharon, she is the best part of this duo. I promise you that, though. So I, I love her, <laughs> love her dearly. Yeah. All right. So continuing on in that, you answered this a little bit, but um, you mentioned your call to ministry during your college years. Now, I mean, you are a pastor's kid. So if you didn't know that, he's a PK. Um, yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, there's a very small club of us here. If you guys want to join, it's very exclusive. But, uh, <laughs> and, and there we, are reasons for that. We all yeah. have issues. So like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but in that moment when you, you sense the call to ministry, explain what you mean by that phrase. Sense, or you sensed the call to ministry, you felt called to ministry, and how would you discern that call? And I mean, this is a question directly from students. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a great question because I, I think a sense of call is vital for whatever you believe God wants you to do. And um, I think call to vocational ministry obviously is a, is a very specific calling and there are a lot of different directions that you can serve as far as vocational ministry is concerned. Um, I actually was registered my freshman year as a pre-med student and God had kind of been dealing with me for some time about it, but did not make it clear to me until during my freshman year that, um, that he really wanted me to be doing something else. And so um, my, my dad was a pastor. My mom was the one with the musical ability in our family, and, and I didn't get a ton of that, but I got enough of it that I enjoyed uh, singing and, and uh, played a few instruments. And so uh, it just... It just seemed to me, and God opened up a lot of doors that just affirmed that music was, was the direction I needed to go. And so uh, I actually finished a bachelor's degree in music. That's my bachelor's degree. Um, but did not surrender to preach until my second semester at Southwestern Seminary. And um, that's when I changed from music degree to, you know, theology and so forth and went from there. But, uh, yeah, so... You know, I think we all have a journey. We learn to hear God's voice, to sense what he's leading us to do. And uh, I know this, God always gives you affirmation about that. You know, he doesn't want to play games with you about it. It's a pretty serious thing about what his purpose is for your life. And, and uh, I think for me, the biggest lesson in that was being in a position to hear God, mm -hmm. to prioritize really seeking him about the direction for my life. And uh, I got super serious about that during my college years. Um, so uh, God used those years to, you know, to really, to really move me forward, if you will, in my walk with him and calling and so forth. So you would, I mean, probably agree with me, and I, I didn't know this firsthand, so this is just kind of a lob. But no matter your vocation, you sense that there is going to be an affirmation and you can be a minister in that vocation. Mm. Right. So, Absolutely. Because, I mean, we know we have pre-med in here. We have STEM students in here. We have nursing students in here. We have music students in here. We yeah. have education students in here. Yeah. Um, and every one of those fields is a mission field. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for the person who's seeking to discern that call into per particularly vocational ministry, it wasn't this aha moment necessarily, yeah. but maybe just like a kind of a. 
affirmation of thoughts? For, for me, it was actually a gnawing. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I had wanted, I had had an interest in medicine since I was a, a, an adolescent, really, and uh, had kind of had that in my mind, mm -hmm. you know, all along. Uh, in fact, I had one college student in one of the past churches I pastored early on in my ministry that I, we were talking one day and she asked me something mm -hmm. about my background and I told her that I wanted to, to be a, a physician and I was very interested in anesthesiology and just with no hesitation whatsoever she said, wow, and, and, and you fulfilled that. I'm thinking, no, I'm in past. I said, what do you mean? She said, man, you put me to sleep every week, Brother Gil. So I, <laughs> Said, ah, oh, walked right into that one. Yeah. You're you're good. So, but I, you know, I think using the term vocational ministry mm -hmm. is, is the way that I try to say, okay, that's a particular path. Mm -hmm. But everybody in here, listen, please, all of us are ministers. No matter what you're calling in life, no matter where God sends you or what the platform is, you're a minister. It's not like RJ and I are ministers and you're not. No, every believer has been called to minister in some way. And that's another reason you need to take very seriously whatever it is you sense God calling you to do with your life, occupationally. Because it's more than so you can make a check. It's even more than you can provide for your family one day. It's more than, you know you feeling like it's just something you really would like, although that would be very helpful. I mean, God uses, you know, a number of things to sort of direct us because he creates us with that purpose in mind. So the truth is he already knows what he wants every one of you to do. The trick here is, is that you have to discover what that is. And that comes through a lot of prayer, being in tune, staying in God's word, being faithful to where you are right now because every moment of this preparation time in college, even if you don't know ultimately what you're going to do, God does not waste a moment of this. So I would just plead with you, uh, don't you waste it either because this is a critical time and you're going to look back on it either with great memories that, man, God really did some work in my life, or are you going to look back at it like, man, why, why didn't I take that more seriously? Why didn't I take advantage of all those great relationships with other believers? And you know, So I would just encourage you to, to really keep that at the forefront of, of your thinking. And God's going to tell you in his time, his way, he'll make it clear. It almost seems like you know, vocational calling is better together. Just throwing that out there. Hmm. You're welcome. That's for the old people in the back. And... <laughs> For whoever else gets that. Um, so we're going to take a quick turn All from right. some of these introductory questions as well as some of your calling in the past and looking at particular theological questions. You ready for this? I, I hope. You're born ready for this. All right, so jumping in. How do you know if you are a true, genuine Christian, saved, justified, secure, and undeniably going to heaven? Um, the sense is the person that submit this question is confused about personal salvation experience. And I would say even if every person's salvation experience is exactly the same. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That, that's a great question. And I think I would start by saying, number one, if you, if you are struggling with this, please know that you're not alone. This is not unusual 
all right? In fact, I would say most Christians at some point, at some segment in their life, kind of do some evaluation. You know, the scripture numbers of times says examine yourselves, you know, test yourselves even in the faith and so forth. And so I, I, think there's, I think there are times where probably everyone kind of goes through this process of, of man, am I, am I really, you know, am I really saved? Now, let me say this to you. There's a way, I believe, to avoid a lot of serious doubt and a lot of long-term confusion and going on about that. I, I, would, I would encourage you to be cautious about feelings. When, when you're evaluating, when you're thinking about your salvation, I, I, would, I would encourage you to, to be very cautious about basing any of the conclusions you may be entertaining in your mind based on feelings. If you're struggling with this, the, the best way to come to some, some resolution of this is to get back in this book where you find the facts about what it means to be saved. And one thing that I hope you'll trust me on tonight is that it has absolutely nothing to do with how you feel. All right? It has to do with a relationship that is established by how God's Word gives us direction in how that relationship is established and how it's even possible in the first place. The other thing I want you to know for sure is that, again, God will not play games with you about this either. Now, your adversary will. And by the way, it's your, it's your adversary that will really play with your feelings and your emotions and a lot of other things. I mean, he'll even tinker with your thinking at times, okay? But here you can find the, the, the absolute answers to number one, how is a person saved in the first place? Now, will God deal with each of us differently as he brings us through that journey of drawing us to himself? Absolutely. And that's how all of our stories have some different turns, you know, in them. But the basic facts of salvation have never changed. And they won't ever change. And so what you have to do is come to a place of such trust and belief in what God says about it, that that's where you find your stability and your anchor about your own relationship with him. You're not saved because you feel like you're saved tonight. You're saved because God says you are based on what he has done and already accomplished through his son Jesus and how he has led you and allowed you to respond to that. Period. Okay. So just stay in the word because I'm going to tell you staying in the word will also kind of help you hedge off some of that stuff that sometimes causes you to begin to doubt. Okay? Um, is it possible that somebody in here tonight, maybe there's doubting there because God is putting that, of course, but only you ultimately can know that. But here's the good news, if that's you. God is always waiting to get that resolved with you. And so you don't have to continue on in that struggle and that battle and that back and forth business, okay? 
you can you can get it resolved. I think that's really good, and I think it also segues really perfectly into the next question, because we think about God's call upon our life for salvation through Christ. But what about His call in general? Like when we're trying to discern God's will or His voice in the midst yeah. of the chaos of everything that we're hearing, reading, you know, viewing, etc. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I guess where I finally arrived in, in these kind of decision making processes, you know, and, and guys, you are, I mean, you are just getting started, you know, with, with a lot of major life decisions. And once again, this is why it's so important now for you to be applying God's word to be, some of this is just experience. It's just growing to know the voice of God in your life. Do we make mistakes sometimes? Absolutely. Okay. Sometimes we miss God's voice. By the way, that's one of the ways he teaches us to know the difference between his voice and something else. Okay. But don't be afraid to do a number of just very basic things. Number one, remember this. God's will for your life will never contradict his word. Never. Number two, not even the Holy Spirit will put something in you that contradicts this book. Okay? So if there's, if there's ever something that you're thinking about but you find and you're searching God's word and God gives you a definite, nope, that's not something I need to do, then, then the decision making is over. The process just needs to stop right there because none of us need to make decisions that are in contradiction to God's word. Why? Because we know that God's word is God's will because it's true. Even Jesus said in a prayer to the Father, Father, sanctify those who follow me in truth. And your word, God, is truth. Okay? So let's just say you're considering whether you need to do something. Well, if you don't see any reservation, you don't find any contradiction in God's word, then great. That's like maybe I've passed the first test. Next is continue to pray because just because God's word doesn't say you shouldn't do this doesn't mean that you should do it, okay? Just because you can doesn't always mean that you should. Why? Because you, you want to be in God's perfect will. So how do you continue to search that? You ask God to give you peace about it. And once again, if in your searching and your praying, if, if God doesn't give you that peace, I'm not talking about emotional feelings, I'm talking about that deep down inside gut where only you and God can see. You don't have that peace, then that's a check. You need to hang on just a second and make sure. So don't be afraid to experiment with this kind of, that's not a good word, don't, don't be afraid to practice right now in your life with decisions that, that may not necessarily have huge consequences. It'd be better for you to learn some of these lessons in decisions that don't have huge con consequences than to wait later down the road and make some you know, bonehead decisions on something that's going to impact the rest of your life. Right? So take this search, take this process of um, 
of discerning God's will seriously. Yeah, that's great. And you know, Kevin DeYoung writes about we tend to have this tendency to look at God's will as if it's a magic eight ball. Mm-hmm. So we ask him and then we shake and we wait for the response. Ooh, yeah. And he's like, obviously God's not an eight ball. Yeah. Nor is he a bullseye that we're trying to perfectly hit the bullseye on or you know, target. Yeah. But we do have guidance. We do have the voice of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so there are moments where he's actually giving us the opportunity to use the wisdom that he's given us as Holy Spirit infused people yeah. to just make a decision. Yeah. Especially if it's not a moral one, right? Because we know if it's immoral, it's already answered for us. Right. right. Yeah. Well, and I think, I, I guess one other thing I would add to this, RJ, is just that once again, look around you tonight. I mean, you're surrounded by other young men and young women who obviously love God. They wouldn't be here tonight. They're, they're on the same journey that you are. And because you are a part of a church family like this, you also have some older heads like me and, yeah, RJ and, uh, you know, others that maybe have walked down some of these same paths and have gone through some of these same decision-making processes that you're having to go through. Don't be afraid to talk to some of us and just say, hey, man, this is something I'm dealing with. You remember dealing with this kind of decision? Did you ever have to do it? And if so, man, I'd love to hear kind of how you dealt with that, okay? It's not that we have all the answers, but we can just, I guarantee you some of us can tell you some things that didn't go well, and maybe we would be able to help you avoid some of those, you know, uh, wrong turns, just because we made them. Um, so use that resource too, brothers and sisters in Christ, yeah. I think a lot of our fear in making those decisions, especially the wrong decision, is this idea that we will kind of reap the wrath of God if we're not making the correct decision. Mm. Um, and I think that fear is kind of intrinsic to us as broken people. Yeah. Um, and you know, so a lot of these questions kind of revolve around some of those things. There's especially a question here that talks about how do we reconcile Jesus' passive, almost nonviolent nature in the New Testament with God's seemingly wrathful and destructive nature in the Old Testament. So, you know, we feel that, but we can also see what looks to be like this dichotomy of personality in the scripture. How would you walk someone through, you know, is this discontinuous between the personality of God or? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think we need to consider the person of God. Who is he? Who does the Bible say that he is? I mean, where else are you going to turn for the answers to that? Okay? So once again, it's very important for us to take seriously how the Scripture reveals God and, and make sure that whatever other sources we may be you know, connecting with or plugging into are not out in left field somewhere totally disregarding what God's Word Himself says. You know, he, He's revealed Himself to us. And the reality is between the Old and the New Testament, between those uh, periods of time, it was the same God the entire time. Some people have this idea that, it, gosh, it's like two different gods. We had this old wrathful, you know, man, warmongering God in the Old Testament, and now here comes sweet Jesus along. Well, God is one, 
So this is part of understanding who God is. God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. He's one. So the reality is everything that God is, He has always been. That has never changed. He has no beginning. He has no end. But what we have seen throughout history is how God chose to manifest and reveal Himself to man that He created because He desired fellowship with us and He desired relationship with us. Is God a God of love? Is He love? Let me, how many of you think God is love? This is the law of guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's an easy one, right? Is, is, is God a God of wrath? According to Scripture? He is. Is God our ultimate judge? Yeah, He is. I mean, these are terms that are big time important today, and there, there are a lot of terms that, that people have just decided that, you know what, I'm going to decide that God is not these things. He's just what I want Him to be. I want Him to be love. And by the way, aren't you glad that God manifested Himself in the way that He did in the first part of His revelation to us for the sake of sending His Son Jesus to also manifest His love for us. And a lot of what we see in the Old Testament is, is God trying to show His creation after we blew it in the Garden of Eden. None of this would have ever happened, you know, had the Garden of Eden not happened. Man's disobedience. But it happened. Didn't take God by surprise. He's known that the beginning of the foundation of the world. But God also came with a new covenant to show just how much He loves us and that He does not desire for us to experience His wrath. Is He a God that can bring wrath? Absolutely. But He's also love. And, and, and that is the relationship that he desires to have with people as father and children. I, I was, was thinking about just what you said a moment ago, and I, I, all of a sudden it took me back to when our first child, Jason, was learning how to walk. And just so y'all will know, just, just to kind of, you know, sort of mimic the Old Testament God. I, I remember when Jason would be trying to walk, he'd be stumbling along there, you know, and all of a sudden, boom, down he'd go. And so I just figured he might need to know a little bit of that. So I'd go, you need to know about wrath. I'd go over and I'd pick him up. I'd say, get up from there, Jason. And I'd pop his little old legs. Some of these folk don't know me, do they? Yeah. No, I didn't do that. They were all just like, yeah, did he really? <laughs> no, I didn't do that. Well, I mean, what does, a, what does a loving father do? Went over there and I picked him up and I loved him and I said, come on, buddy, it's okay, let's go again. Let's go again, okay? Now, that's the relationship that God desires to have with us as father and children. Right? 
It's, it's, you know. Is God just? Yes. God is just. Which is why he has to do some of the other things that he does, such as judge and punish sin. If he didn't punish sin, he would not be just. So you see, a lot of the questions that we have about reconciling all this, and I've got news for you, I'm 62 years old. I don't have it all reconciled yet in my mind because we're talking about God. But what I do know is, is how he describes himself. And I trust him. He's all these things. Those are his attributes. And I can't change them. He's God. Does that make sense? Does that help? I think so. And I would say, too, I think we often think we have to juxtapose wrath with love. Yeah. When, in fact, love can power wrath, especially if they're punishing if it's seeking to punish something that doesn't need to affect the thing that is loved, yeah. right? So, I mean, just as you would not punish Jason for falling as he's learned to walk, you would want to discipline him at some point if he's disobeying yeah. because you understand that that's going to lead to something that's dangerous or that's, that will affect him negatively forever. And yeah. so is it loving to discipline? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Is my wrath against that act versus my child loving? Yes. Yeah. But I'm still going to love the child in the midst of my wrath against the action. And so well, and, and the other the other thing is we have to remember is that God has no desire for anyone to experience his wrath. That's why he sent Jesus. Mm-hmm. So those of us who are believers are no longer under the wrath of God. Mm-hmm. We're no longer under the condemnation of God. So we're not we're going to experience his chastisement, mm-hmm. his punishment, because he loves us. You know, the book of Hebrews says that God, he 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 chastises or he disciplines those whom he loves. Why? Because he he desires for us to remain in fellowship with him and to 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 have the the life that he desires for us to have. And so he's gonna he's gonna discipline us in that way, but. The wrath of God, that's why Christ came. So that we could be freed from that relationship of of being under the wrath of God because of our sin. That's why we're under the wrath of God to start with. That's good. All right, so we started a little late this evening. So I'm hoping that you'll give us a few extra minutes tonight because I want to get to some very practical questions before we wrap up. So these might be a little more rapid fire. Okay. You ready? All right. All right. Why do we not have communion or the Lord's Supper at Sunday services more regularly? Many students in our ministry currently have not taken communion with the whole congregation based on even the timeline over the past two years. Great question. I'll try to make it rapid. Uh, Just uh, most Baptist churches like ours generally have, you know, observed the Lord's Supper, say, about quarterly. Now, there's no rhyme or reason for that we probably should do it more Uh, the fact is Jesus never gave us a 
how many times that we're supposed to do it or how often. He just said, as often as you do do it, right. here's the reason you do it. Do it in remembrance of me, okay? Remember what he did for us. So I would just say to you that, um, hey, we can, I, I, that was a great question. We probably need to do it a little more often. The COVID thing sort of, you know, and we've got the prepackaged deals and some people in our church are asking me how long are we going to do that? When can we get back, you know, to passing the elements and all of that? But we're going to continue to have the Lord's Supper, and so uh, I'll keep that in mind. We'll try to have one soon so you guys can be involved in it. Yeah. All right. Uh, what do you believe is the most critical area for growth at First Baptist Tuscaloosa and the church at large in the next five years? Small question. Yeah, well, you know what, though? I, there, there are three things on my mind right now and on my heart that have been there for a while, and it, it's going to take a little time to see, but three, three things. One, I would say, is conversion growth. Mm-hmm. By conversion growth, I'm simply talking about growth that comes as a result of people coming to know Christ as their Savior. I mean, I'm not throwing rocks at, you you know, it's okay. Sometimes people need to go from one church to another or whatever, but um, I'm not all that interested in that just personally. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in conversion growth, which which really to me is birthed out of disciple-making, which is a second area that I would say is very important to me for us to continue to grow because I'm one of these guys that believes you're not really doing great commission uh, or uh, un- until you're you're not only seeing people come to Christ, but you're making disciples of people. Yeah, baptizing them. But what are we doing after that? Helping them know how to obey everything that Christ has commanded us to do, and that's important. So, uh, disciple making, and then uh, uh, a third thing is missions. Th- this is an extremely committed church when it comes to missions, but the emphasis of a lot of our missions has been globally and internationally, which is fine, and we're going to continue to be doing that. We need to be praying for our partners in Ukraine right now, First Baptist Church, Belgrade, Nostrovsky, uh, with what's going on there. We have a partnership with them. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. But um, what's really on my heart is more missions right here locally. And uh, you guys are going to be hearing some more things about that not just in our church, but in a big church, big seaway um, in the coming months. So uh, I'm excited about that. Okay. All right, here's a, here's a lob for you. Why is sexual sin such a big deal? And how does a legal document, such as a marriage certificate, no longer make it a sin? Why does a legal document no longer make it a sin? Mm-hmm. Oh, so how does a legal document what does that have to do with you being married? Is that, is that what that question I think that's is? the idea. So why is sexual sin, I would assume, outside of marriage such a big deal? And how does the marriage certificate no longer make it a sin? Okay. So uh, the, the first part of that question is that, once again, in my mind, this is an easy question, okay? Because while many people think the instructions of the Bible are antiquated, they're out of step with what's going on in the world today, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. God's very clear that sexual relations with um, someone outside of a covenant relationship of marriage 
at any time is, is, is wrong. It's, it's sin. Okay? God creates us with a purity. He creates us with the intent that one man and one woman come together and they make a covenant vow and relationship with God in marriage. And so the, the, the scripture is very descript about all of that, okay? So I don't know how to answer that any more directly than that. I mean, he, he, uh, once again, each of us have to determine where, where are we going to find the guidelines for how we choose to live. Every person in this room, you'll have to make your own decisions about that. I, I hope that you will settle on God's word, okay? But that, that's going to have to be your decision. As far as a, uh, why does a piece of paper or whatever make it no longer? That, that's, that's a good question, but I, I, think, I think it's not the piece of paper that really is important. I, I think it is the ceremony itself. Uh, documents on paper don't go way back to the beginning. That started years later. But, you, but we do know that forever, when a man and woman have come together as husband and wife, there has always been a sacred ceremony of some kind, if you will, that simply just signifies that we are now joining together and we are vowing to God that we are going to be faithful to one another in this covenant relationship. So really, whether you have the, the, the paper or not, although that's the way we legally do it, you know, if you're going to prove legally that you're married, you've got to have the paper. But I think more importantly, especially for believers and especially today, because Guess what? Right here in Tuscaloosa County, you are considered married legally when you go to the courthouse and pay the fee and get that piece of paper. That's all you got to do. You don't have to have clergy signature anymore. I don't ever sign marriage certificates anymore. Uh, they, they don't require that. But I think if you're a believer... That might be fine for somebody who just wants to go and they're not really thinking about is there anything else. But as a believer, you want God to bless and to sanctify your marriage, right? And so it's important that we do what um, sort of signifies that God, this is, this is a covenant that we're making before you. And to have witnesses there to have people there just adds to that accountability and to the testimony, if you will, of that. So while the world is kind of getting obviously pretty lax, you know, not only about how we marry, but who we marry and a lot of other things that really depart from God's plan for marriage, I think we as believers need to we need to remain strong about that. Not, that. not that the world cares whether we do or not, but the world's not who we're going to give answer to. I'm going to give answer to God one day about what I did concerning this. 
it's, it's the same reason that even though Sharon and I have had bumpy roads over the last 40 years, every couple has them. We didn't bail and quit. I know the world doesn't care. I mean, the world sets us up that, hey, if you don't like this, well, <laughs> just get out of it. By the way, um, can I also tell you today that 70% of couples who are getting married are living together before they actually make the commitment in marriage. 70%. Why? Total disregard because if you go ahead and just give yourself away and you commit that sexually and the scripture has something to say about that, then you're exactly right. In God's eyes, you should be married. even if you're not in the state's eyes. So what are you going to do with that? Well, most people, if they get tired of this deal and they, things don't go well, well, they just quit. Is that God's will? No. No. So, great question. In light of that question, we do have a follow-up. Um, can divorce ever be biblically correct? There's, there, there are two places that I think the scripture is, is pretty, pretty clear. And, and, and let me just say this first. Mm -hmm. I, I, don't think, I don't think the Bible would ever say that it's correct for somebody to get divorced. In fact, in Malachi, God's pretty strong about it. Scripture says that God hates divorce. Now, it does not say that God hates divorcees or people who go through divorce. What does God hate about divorce? God hates the pain. God hates the suffering that it causes. God hates the brokenness of families that it causes. That, that's, what, that's what disturbs God's heart, okay? Why? Because he loves people, even those who may be going through those difficult times, okay? So, so it, 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 it has nothing to do with whether, you know, God, how he feels about divorce, because I think he's made that clear. The question in our minds usually is, is there, is there a time where a person could be divorced and then be remarried? Does that make sense? So what does the scripture say about that? Well, there's two places in Scripture. One was through the teaching of Jesus directly and another through the Apostle Paul that address this issue. In Matthew chapter 19, and I believe it's verse 9, and, he, and there's more verses there, but, but Jesus just comes right down and says very directly, um, other than sexual immorality, unfaithfulness, a man should never divorce his wife and a wife should never divorce her husband. Okay? If there has been that unfaithfulness, if one or the other has broken that bond and that covenant of marriage, then 
the person who has broken that bond has really put themselves in a position now where they have no biblical um, permission, if you will, no biblical reason to remarry. And can I just say this, guys and gals, listen. Other than your decision about whether you're going to walk with Jesus or not, you will never make a more important in your, uh, decision in your entire life than who you decide to marry. So all of this stuff about what God says about marriage, look, this is why we need to have conversations like this because you need to know what God says about it beforehand. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, the scripture is very clear that a believer should not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Okay? But it's interesting because in the very next chapter, in chapter 7, Paul addresses what I believe is the second place where the scripture would be supportive of, of someone remarrying or, or getting out of a marriage. And, and you can read this for yourself, but in, in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul gives some very practical advice which let me just paraphrase it just simply he says you know if if you find yourself as a christian married to a non-christian now wait a minute didn't he just say in chapter six that shouldn't happen yeah now in chapter seven he's saying what happens when somebody who is a believer married to a non-believer what goes on there well, remember this, that when Paul was writing all of that, the gospel was just exploding on the scene. And so Paul was actually responding in the first verse of chapter 7. He says, now about the questions that you have asked. So in their correspondence, these new Christians and new believers in Corinth are asking Paul about, okay, how does this impact, how does this walk with Christ? How does my Christianity impact my married life? And who are those people asking the question? Well, many of them were people who were already married when they heard the gospel. And guess what happened? In some of those couples, one person, either the husband or the wife, accepted the gospel and now is a Christian while the other had not. So Paul is saying in chapter 7, if you're in that kind of situation... Here's what you're to do. If you're the believer and your unbelieving spouse wants to stay in that marriage, then you as the believer are bound to stay in that marriage because God is sanctifying that marriage through your relationship with Christ. But then he says, if your unbelieving spouse desires not to stay in this marriage, and they are determined to leave this thing, then you can let them go. And he says very specifically, you are no longer under the bond. So in that situation, the person who is a believer would at that point be free 
to remarry because they're freed from the bond. Okay? Those are the only two places, RJ, that I'm aware of in Scripture that would open up a, um, a possibility that, okay, if, if I've been part of a marriage that has not made it, then here's what you know, the scripture would say about those. I think maybe in the, very quickly here, um, where some of this is coming from is also what you see today a lot of times with abusive relationships and supposed Christian mm-hmm. homes. Yeah. You know, who, yeah. is the spouse free at that point to realize, okay, either they weren't a believer or they're sinning against me greatly and I'm in danger yeah. or they're abandoning me emotionally because they see me as some object they can abuse. Yeah. Does that justify? Yeah. You know? Well, the fir- first thing I'm going to tell you that in my own ministry in life, and, and I realize this goes both ways, okay, mm-hmm. but the majority of the time, let's just say there's a physical abuse going on. More times than not, the, the wife is going to be the victim of that. And I, I, have, I have told many, many women who have found themselves in this position, and they don't want their marriage to end, and I, I get that. But when it's obvious that this man is out of control, whatever is involved, whether it's alcohol or he's just not saved or whatever, when it gets to a place where a woman is in a dangerous position, I'll be one of the first to tell her you need to get out of that situation. Now, please understand, that doesn't make any decisions for that woman about what's next. We're just talking about you need to, you need to get free from this thing mm-hmm. right now, okay? But once again, ladies, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer you a, a, a special piece of, of encouragement here. In not quite 40 years, 37 or 8 years of pastoring now, I will tell you that... Um, I can't count how many I have met women who have fallen in love, Christian women, who have fallen in love with a non-believer. And they convince themselves along the way that, you know what, I know he's not saved, but I'm going to change that. Now, this piece of advice is for everybody. Guys, same thing. But ladies, listen to me, please. And I say this with love. Marriage is not a mission field. I want that to soak in. If God has made His will crystal clear both you guys and you gals you need to be very careful about who you date about who you allow yourself to get emotionally involved with because I want you to know that our emotional attachments are just a very short step away from physical attachments So 
So that's why as you make friendships with, with, with people of the opposite sex, okay, you, you, may be, you may be drawn to them for any number of reasons, and that's fine, but, but you need to early on find out where that person is. Does that mean you're not supposed to be their friend? No, that's not what I'm saying. Listen carefully. I'm simply saying that if you are a believer, you do not need to make the potential of marriage a mission field because once you are emotionally caught, I'm going to tell you, you are in for a tough, tough go. If that person that you're in love with doesn't come to Christ, now you're having to make a decision, am I going to obey God in marriage or not? And many of those who have gone on to say, God will understand, and they, they've made that decision, and I'm not telling you that God won't forgive you, that's not what I'm just saying if you want the blessing of God and if you want to know God's best for you in relationships, guard yourself, guard your heart, as the scripture says. Don't set yourself up to be put in a decision where you emotionally, you are all in. The only thing you have left is whether you're going to be all in physically. And for some... Even that happens, and I'm going to tell you, when that happens, now it's going to be really, really, really tough to decide that I can't do this. So these are things that you need to think about proactively versus reactively. Okay, and, I, and I'm sharing this from the bottom of my heart, y'all. Because in the seat that I've sat for all these years, I, I can't even begin to tell you the amount of pain and, and, and emotional trauma, hurt, disappointment and frustration simply because we ignored you know, what God's already revealed about this thing. I just don't want you to go through that. God's got somebody for you, so just trust him. As I found out in my life, you just never know when God will bring that person along. So really the takeaway, especially for the guys, is just be bold and upfront and asking for the bathroom. Yeah. 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 Even if you don't need to go. I mean, just <laughs> act like you do, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Hey, if nothing else, it's a segue into conversation. Can, can I just tell you, ladies, that's the only time in my life I ever used that line, okay? I mean, it was the, <laughs> I promise. I didn't do that on a regular basis, okay? It just was. <laughs> Some may say that that was divinely orchestrated. Um, so final two questions, and we're just going to dismiss after this. Uh, the first question is just one that I've been wondering all evening is, did you and Kate get together to where that all of us would match the slide that she made? Because, I mean, it's like exactly your color scheme. And I was just wondering. I, man, no, I, I didn't. Yeah. In fact, I haven't even talked to Kate all day till tonight, just briefly. So, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Well, yeah. I was just thinking about it the whole time. Uh, last question. <laughs> <laughs> I have been paying attention to nothing else. But um, this, the very last question, I think this is incredibly important. Do you want to join our FCM Hangs group me? <laughs> uh, Sub-question, do you know what group me is? 
N no, I don't. And that's why I, I that that's what I was trying to decide whether I was going to ask or not. I don't know. I, yeah. I probably need to know before. So the, I... the default answer is yes. Okay, we'll yeah. sign you up. <laughs> okay, I'll hey. trust you. <laughs> hey, can we um, thank him for his time this evening? And... Uh.